What does the word infallible means? The word infallible means incapable of error. Meaning, if something is infallible, it is never wrong. And thus, we consider it absolutely trustworthy. And the Bible actually says that the scripture is infallible. In Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Let me read it according to uh, New King James Version, so all of us will have the same translation. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or inspired by the Holy Spirit. So infallibility means incapable of wrong, trustworthy. It's actually a very strong statement what uh, uh, Second Peter brought in, even in the English language, to use the word no and ever in the same sentence. It's almost absolutely never can happen. What's the difference between inerrancy and infallibility? Some Bible students like to differentiate between them. Is there really a significant difference? Many times these two words are used interchangeably. But some scholars differentiate between infallible and in error. They said infallible means trustworthy, means reliable. It refers to something that is without any defect whatsoever. So we can trust the teaching of the scripture because it is infallible. And if we follow the teaching of the scripture, we will never go away. Inerrancy is a more recent term than infallible. And they say inerrancy has to do with the details, meaning the details that mentioned in the scripture, there is no error or no mistakes at all. So that is the difference. They say infallible is a broader term. It deals more with the personal relationship of the Lord, more than the details in the scripture. Okay. But inerrant has to do with the details of the scripture. That's why anyone who believes in inerrancy believes in infallibility. But the reverse is not true. Meaning, may I believe that the Bible is infallible? but not in Iran. So some people nowadays, unfortunately, they argue 
that the Bible can contain errors of fact, but it is infallible because it accomplished its purpose regarding humanity and the gospel of salvation and our relationship with God. So, according to, to this group, they say, no problem to trust the Bible regarding your salvation, regarding everything has to do with faith and practice, but it may contain some errors. The other group, which actually it is the faith in the Orthodox Church, Coptic Orthodox Church, that the Bible is both infallible and inerrant. The Bible is both infallible and inerrant. And why we believe that the Bible is both infallible and errant? Because there are at least three premises here. The first one, that God is true, as we read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. That is the first premise. God is true. St. Paul said, Indeed, let God be true, but every man is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. The second premise is God breathed out the scripture. It is the breath of God. As we read in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the word inspiration literally means breath, breathed out by God. So, if God is true and the scripture is the breath of God, then the scripture is also absolutely true. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 17, he said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So these are three premises. We need actually to, to, to understand well because people who speak about that the Bible is infallible but has error, actually they violate these three principles. God is true, Romans 3, 4. God breathed out the scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Therefore, the scripture are true, John 17, 17. Maybe we can summarize this part with the three I's, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Would you agree with that statement? Absolutely, but I want to actually to say why these three eyes are important. Because if the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, then the Bible is authoritative. We can speak about the authority of the scripture. Then when we decide on anything right or wrong, we'll go to the scripture. The Bible is authoritative. Bible has authority over us. I read there are so many translations, dialects, languages. Can you maybe comment, does the translation also infallible, inerrant, 
and inspired, also infallible or authentic. When we speak about infallible or inerrant, we are speaking about the original text in its original language. Yes. Original text in its original language. That's why if the translators or the committee of translators believe in these three eyes, inspired, inerrant, infallible, then number one actually they have to be very very faithful in translating each word in order to communicate the exact understanding or meaning of the original text and in order to do this the committee of translators, they should investigate all relevant manuscript. They actually should study the Bible original language. They should not translate from one language to another language, but for, for example, from English to Arabic. But they have to intensely study the Bible original language and also study biblical interpretation, culture, history, all these are very very important that's why right now most of us we don't know the old greek or the hebrew so in order to do bible study you need actually to have several translations and to compare them also with the interpretation of the early church fathers and uh, using like the interlinear bible who actually bring the the original text and its meaning in the English language. What I'm trying to say, in order actually to understand the scripture, you need to go to its original language. So the translations are not inspired, not inerrant. Sayyidna, to the anonymous forum we opened a few days ago, is, okay, so the first book was infallible. But how can we prove that the, what we have now is exactly the same? And I think that the owner of the question was asking, please do not use the Bible to prove to me that the scripture is infallible. Is that a, a fair question? Absolutely, it's a fair question. There are external evidence and internal evidence. So when he is saying don't use the Bible, he speaks about the internal evidence. But there is external evidence. For example, the fulfilled prophecy from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament. There are many, many prophecies about the Messiah. And all these prophecies were fulfilled. For example, I just give some some examples. The Lord said to Eve and Adam in Genesis 3:15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's fulfilled. The virginal birth in Isaiah 7:14 is fulfilled. The birthplace of the Messiah Bethlehem, Micah 5:2 is fulfilled. The 
a forerunner who prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, Malachi 3.1, is fulfilled. The ministry of miracles that the Lord, the Messiah, will perform in many miracles in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 5.6 is fulfilled. The Lord is sold for 30 shekels in Zechariah 11.12 is fulfilled. When I'm saying it's fulfilled, fulfilled from the history, I'm not saying from the scripture itself. Joseph was a Jewish historian. historian. You know, he recorded all these things. His hand and uh, and feet pierced. Psalm 22:16 is fulfilled. Crucified among thieves. Isaiah 53:12 is fulfilled. No bones broken. Psalm 22:17 is fulfilled. Thirsty on the cross. Psalm 69:21 is fulfilled. Resurrection. Psalm 16:10 and 22:22. 22, 22. So all these fulfilled prophecies actually make us believe that the Bible is infallible. Another point is the archaeological support for the Bible. Archaeologist, his name is Nelson Glowick. He said, it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. The geography of Bible lands and the visible remains of antiquity were gradually recorded until uh, today. And they found more than 25,000 sites within the region. And all of them match and agree with what is written in the scripture. Also, there are non-Christian resources that spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Jewish historian Vilavius Josephus, who was born 37 AD, made reference to Jesus, the so-called Christ, and he spoke about him and when we compare what's written in the scripture, in the prophecies, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, with what this Jewish man, Jewish historian person wrote, they actually go hand in hand. Another person, Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, born 52 AD, 52 AD, wrote about Christ, who was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Another one, Pliny the Younger, 112 AD, spoke about troublesome sect of Christian. Another one, Sutinius, 120 AD, spoke about the disturbances over Christ. And when you read these books, and they are available, and you compare this external evidence, you can actually prove the reliability of the scripture. So uh, these are just examples. There are many more examples, external evidence to the infallibility and to the inerrancy of uh, the scripture. Thank you, Sid. Just a question just received now related to use of science and um, and the Bible, and are they also compatible with each other? 
and the owner of the questions brought uh, um, Noah's flood. Can you comment on this, please? His Holiness Pope Shenouda used to say, perfect faith does not contradict with perfect uh, science. And it depends how we are using the science, meaning some people try to use theories from the science in order their goal to actually contradict and to condemn the scripture or to critique the scripture. But if somebody actually start to study with no bias, with fairness, the scripture and the science, they will not find any uh, contradiction. The science actually proved there are remnants of Noah's Ark on the Mount Ararat. And many actually scientific researches prove the flood and what happened in the flood according to scripture was true. But some people, as I say, they use theories to critique the Bible and to prove there are wrong information or wrong scientific facts in the scripture. But all of this actually in the apologetics, they, they actually responded to it. Um, there is also a group of questions that came. I want to group them together as calling it seemingly contradicted or apparent contradictions in the Bible. Um, someone will say this king, and I think the exact question about um, the second kings and the question was exactly related to the difference in age of Ahaziah, the king in one account was saying 22 years of age and then the other account 42 of age. Another example is, are we talking about the time of resurrection? Was it early in the morning, late in the morning, uh, night? Can you please your grace comment on seeming or apparent contradictions? Let me take the age of Ahaziah as an example. Definitely there is no contradiction in the scripture, but we need to understand why it is written this way. For example, definitely the age of Ahaziah was not 42, because his father died uh, and his father's age was 40. So if Ahaziah reigned at age of 42 in the same year in which his father died, this means he is older than his father by two years. So 42 is not his age. His age is 22 as mentioned in the Kings. But we need to understand why we have two books, the Chronicles and the Kings, more or less they are speaking the same language. Book of Kings actually is focusing on the political dimension of the kingdom of Israel and Judah. But the book of Chronicles is actually focusing on the spiritual dimension 
of the kingdom of Judah and Israel. So, when the Bible says he was 42, he was not speaking about the age of Ahaziah himself, but he was speaking about the age of the evil that start to infiltrate the kingdom of Israel, which started by Omri. Omri, the grandfather, is the one actually who moved the capital to Samaria. And he built idols and asked the people to worship the idol and not to go to Jerusalem. And if we add from Omri to Ahaziah, Omri reigned six years, then I have his son 22, this makes it 28 years, Ahaziah two years, then 30 years, then Yoram 12 years, this 42 years, then he came actually Ahaziah king of Judah, not king of Israel. But why he considered him as a king, يعني, the, the evil that started in the kingdom of Israel was mentioned about Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah. The answer to this question, we can find it in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 25. In the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So, although from father's side he was from Judah, but from his mother's side, he was from Israel, the kingdom of Israel, because his mother is the daughter of Ahab, and her grandfather is Omri, the one actually who started to build idols in Samaria and asked people to worship them. Verse 27, and walked in the way of the house of Ahab. Ahab is the king of Israel. Although he was a king of, Ju of Judah, uh, Ahaziah was king of Judah, but he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab so why the Bible is mentioning all these details in order to tell us although he is the king of Judah but he lived as the kings of Israel and followed the same evil of the king of Israel that's why as if his kingdom is a continuation of the wicked kingdom that started by Omri. And as I explained from Omri to Ahaziah, it's 42 years. So in the book of Chronicles, which actually focused on the religious aspect of Israel and, and Judah, not the political aspect. So they mentioned the 42 to emphasize that he, for 42 years, the evil invaded Israel and now became in the kingdom of Judah when Ahaziah 
walked in the step of Umri and Akhab, uh, the father of Asadia, his mother. What about Sayyidina in some of the New Testament events when one gospel at the account of the account of resurrection will say the Marys were by the tomb very early in the morning and then another one will say there was darkness and it was night. Um, can your grace also comment on this? When the Bible was, it was dark, still dark, meaning they started their journey to the tomb while it was dark, you know. But when they arrived there, the sun started to shine. And there is no contradiction because we know that the Lord rose very, very, very early in the morning. Resurrection is about a new day, a new life. And a new beginning matches more with the, the daylight, with the, the sunrise. So when the Bible said they, it was dark, it was dark when they start walking to the tomb. And this journey, until they reached there, the sun was shining. So there is no contradiction. I remember when I was young, there was a teaching in our Sunday school, and I want to confirm if your grace would agree on the concept that in our Orthodox Church, we believe that the Bible inspired by God, taught by the apostles, practiced or lived by the church. Can you comment on the validity of this sentence and also what St. Augustine said, I cannot understand the Bible outside the church. Definitely, it's a very valid teaching. If we think about all different denominations, all different denominations believe in the same text. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, they use the same text. So, what is the difference? The difference in the understanding, in the interpretation. That's why when we want to understand the scripture, we need to go to the early resources before the division of the church. The church, we know in history, the first division happened in the Council of Chalcedon, 451. Before 451, there was same understanding of the scripture in the east and the west in the whole world so if before 451 for example they believed that eucharist is the real body and real blood then any interpretation comes and say no it is not it is just a symbol will be wrong if the church before 451 believed that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, as it's written in John 15. If any later teaching after the division of the church says, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, then it is definitely wrong. That's why when we say the Bible is inspired by God, yes, it is the breath of God. Taught by the apostles as the apostle taught us, interpreted the Bible to us, and there disciples and their disciples that's what we call early church fathers so we need to go to early church father to see 
how they understood the Eucharist, baptism, divorce, abortion, all these things that now we disagree on it. Let us go and see how early church father taught about these things. Then how the godly people or, or, or how the scripture lived by the church. Because the, the word of God is life, spirit and life. It is not just a theoretical text, it's life. So if the early church fathers, they celebrated Eucharist on Sunday, that's how they lived it. Then Sunday is the day of the Lord. Then the true Sabbath now is Sunday, not the seventh day, not the Saturday. So if somebody say, no, the day of the Lord is the seventh day, the Sabbath. No, it's not left by the church before the division, before 451. So yes, we believe that the Bible inspired by God, taught by the apostles and their successors, and clearly practiced or lived by the church. In this way, when we read the scripture, see how the fathers interpreted, how the church lived it, then I will come to the true meaning and true understanding of the scripture. I assume if all these denominations, if all these denominations just stick to this statement and so how the Bible is inspired by God and how the early church fathers interpreted and how it's lived by the church, I think all of us will be in unity. But what is dividing us is our personal interpretation, our personal interpretation of the scripture. Now we received a question from uh, one of our young sons in high school, uh, a scientist teacher who uh, is teaching them uh, evolution and believe that humans evolved from apes. And he brought up um, that there is a similar DNA and bone structure and he claims that humans and ape came from the common ancestor and he claims also he concluded that from uh, uh, fossils and again allegedly uh, genetic studies and this young man is asking how does the bible argue against these claims and what are the evidence that states that that god really created man and not evolved from apes so what is the evidence that God did not create man? There is one question no evolutionist until now answered. It's a very simple question. What is the source of life? What is the source of life? They can make many, many theories, but if they don't understand, if they cannot ask this simple question, then the whole theory of evolution actually has no ground. When I cancel the idea or I delete the idea of creation completely and we are evolved, okay, what is the source of life? How, how life started? Nobody can answer this question. And about the man came from apes, okay, is the evolution is a continuous process or it stopped. 
And if it stopped, why it stopped? And if it is continuous process, why you don't see now apes turn into a human being? And why you don't see two apes give birth to a human being? If this process started millions of years ago, as they say, why it stopped? And when we can see it again? Yes, there is evolution meaning not apes turn it into human being, but in the six days of creation, we can see God started to create simple organism and then more actually a complicated organism were created later on. But they were created. This did not come from that. Also, there is evolution within the same species not from one species to another. For example, people who lived in Africa, they developed melanin to protect themselves from the sun. That's why this thick pigment of melanin makes them black. But people lived in, uh, in Europe, they got rid of the melanin in order because they need more sun rays. That's why they became alpino. What I'm trying within the same species, yes, people can evolve, but not from one species to another, not from apes to human being. And I, I, I want to find just remnant and DNA. It is not a conclusive proof that human came from apes. I want somebody to answer this question. Why this process stopped now? Why you don't see if it's a continuous process? Then every day we should see apes, you know, giving birth to human being and and so on. If I may add a statement for this point, scientifically speaking, most mutations end up with a genetic information loss, not build up of a complex organism. So if actually there are mutations, usually there is a loss of a good genetic makeup, not actually become something much, better. much better. Yeah. And that's what your grace speaking about, which is the micro uh, evolution within a species, not the macro evolution. There's another question um, came from my young man. Um, the last chapter in the gospel, according to Mark verse nine to 20, there are many scholars that claim it was added later to the Bible because of the abrupt ending of the book of Mark. Can Sayyidna discuss the claim? Thank you. These are just claims, but we don't have any evidence for it. And again, we can go to the early manuscripts and we can see whether the early manuscripts have these verses or not. And all this claim based on assumption, it is ended abruptly. But if we go to the old manuscripts, whether the old manuscripts has uh, these verses or not, and how the church referred these verses, whether the church accepted this from the very beginning, we know that the Gospel of St. Mark is one of the actually the first written gospel. 
So if if the church accepted the chapter 16 as a whole, why now people are casting doubt on it? And when we go to the early church fathers, they quote Mark 16, all of it, as originally written by St. Mark. So these are just casting doubts without having strong evidence. Let me tell you what the biblical criticism does. They actually make a claim and throw it out and then they put the burden of proof on on the people to defend it. But the, the truth is that the burden of proof should be on the people who are putting the claim, not on the people who are defending. We, we received the last chapter of Mark as authentic written by San Mark. It's not added. So what are their evidence, their scientific evidence? Not just a claim, not just telling me the abrupt ending uh, makes this chapter is not authentic. No, what are their scientific objective evidence that San Mark did not write this and it was added. And who added it? And in which year was added? And whether the church accepted it or not? So all these questions they have to answer in order for us to see if there is any merit in this claim or not. And that's يعني, a way in apologetic. Uh, the burden of proof should not be on us but on the person who is making the claim. So if somebody told me the last chapter is not authentic, what are your scientific and objective evidence? If they don't have scientific and objective evidence, then the claim is false. One of the questions we got saying is related to holy tradition and its relationship to the infallibility of the Bible. Uh, can you first comment on what is holy tradition? What is its place? Uh, among the father's sayings, the place of the Bible, and where do we, as an Orthodox Church, face the Holy Tradition as what? Is it higher, lower? Where does it stand in the ranking of what we depend upon in our teaching? In order to explain the Holy Tradition, Anna, I want to ask people who attack the Holy Tradition this question. How do you know that the Gospel of Matthew is authentic and the Gospel of uh, Barnabas is not authentic? Who told you these, are, these books are canonical and these books are not canonical? Actually, the answer to this question is the tradition. The holy tradition is the one who told us receive the book of Matthew, but don't accept the book of Enoch. That's the holy tradition. So what is the holy tradition? The holy tradition is the deposit of faith given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his apostles and passed on in the church from generation to another generation. That's the holy tradition. So like when I answer the question about the last chapter of St. Mark, I, I said the church from the first century accepted 
the 16 chapter written by St. Mark. That's the whole tradition. So no one comes now in the 20th century or the 21st century and tell me this is not written by St. Mark without any proof. The church told me there are 27 books in the New Testament. Who told me this? The tradition. The holy tradition. Because in the scripture, there is no one single verse says the numbers of the books of the New Testament are 27. But we received this from the holy tradition. So the holy tradition actually is broader than the scripture. The scripture is part of the holy tradition. And it is the holy tradition who told me that the scripture is the highest authoritative book because it is inspired by God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. So if anyone taught something against the scripture, you know, will not accept it. So who told me this? Who made this statement? It is the holy tradition. That's why when we speak even about the, the church fathers, we don't believe in the infallibility of the church fathers. But we believe in the consensus of the church fathers. When they agree on something, then it is true. But if one person said an opinion and there is no consensus about it, I'm not saying the church fathers are infallible. The only book that's infallible is the scripture. And if one of the church fathers said something against what's written in the scripture, no, I'm not going to uh, accept it. So the holy tradition, as I said, it is the faith, the deposit of faith that the Lord gave to the disciples and the disciples taught to their disciples from generation to generation. Just I, I'm going to give one or two examples. When St. Paul, in his speech, said, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You cannot find this verse in the four Gospels. From where St. Paul got this verse? It's from the Holy Tradition. When Jude in his letter spoke about the prophecy of Enoch, from where he got it? It's not in the book of Genesis. Again, from the Holy Tradition. So, there are many things actually not written in the scripture, but used by the writers of the scripture, like St. Paul or St. Jude, as inspired by God. Get, got it from where? Got it from the Holy Tradition. Does this Yasidna also apply when St. Paul said, as uh, the, the Lord has taught me about? communion in 1 Corinthians 11 and and when he spoke about manner of how we stand in the church how the women need to be in a certain attire and and how do we prostrate ourselves with the sign of the cross are these all related to the tradition absolutely you will not find in the four gospels these details maybe the communion it is there but other things you will not find it. But St. Paul learned his gospel from the Lord directly, as he mentioned in his letter to Galatians. 
So these things actually, and he said to Titus and to Timothy, uh, many things when I come, I will speak to you. When St. Paul spoke about the bishop and the deacons, you know, you will not find this in the four uh, Gospels. So this is part of St. Paul received, again through the Holy Tradition, but it's recorded for us in the scripture. So now it's scripture, now it is infallible, this teaching about Eucharist or about how we prostrate ourselves in the church or how we, we pray raising uh, hands, all these things actually. For example, prayer for the departed. From where we got? Because St. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he spoke about uh, on his force and he said, may the Lord give him rest in that day. So he prayed for a departed person. That's, that's why there is a biblical reference from where St. Paul got it, again from the tradition. But when he wrote it in the scripture, it became scripture inspired by God. Sayyidna, thank you very much um, for your time, for your knowledge, for your prayers. We received many other questions not related to this topic, so I apologize to the audience that we will postpone them, hoping, Sayyidna, you will have the time to be with us in another time while answering questions related to dogma. Thank you, Dr. Hani, and may the Lord give us another opportunity to be with our beloved youth and we can, through the grace of God and his inspiration, we can actually help in answering some of these questions and the challenges that are facing our children right now.